Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. How would you feel if I got rid of the beard and just went with the Fu Manchu-style mustache? Isn't that racist? Probably. For a white guy. Coming to you almost live from the land of Narnia, this is The Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. And we are your hosts. We have some very special guests in the studio with us today, but before we get to that, let's preview the rest of our show. We're going to have another segment with Brenda Kerber from The Traveling Tickle Trunk, her sex talk column. And this week, or this episode rather, uh, she's got a very special offer exclusive to our listeners, so you're, you're going to want to pay attention to that. Uh, Scott will be doing a dramatic reading from the Star Trek technical manual. And uh, you know what? I'm feeling rantish, so you're going to hear a little rant from me as well this episode. But before we get to all of that, I'd like to introduce two very special guests from On Spec Magazine. We have Diane Walton, the managing editor, and Susan McGregor, the fiction editor of the magazine, joining us in the studio. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for joining us. Indeed. We were scrambling to find guests because... Scott and I are tremendously lazy, it turns out, but, uh, and but then you uh, are. And then on spec said, hey, we'd like to be on your show. And I said, we would like to have you on our show. That's right. So here they are. And so tell us what on spec is all about. Oh, I hate it when we get questions like <laughs> that. Um, it's primarily a fiction magazine. Um, more literary fiction than pulp fiction, I suppose. Uh, the focus of OnSpec is literature of the fantastic, which would be, broadly speaking, uh, science fiction, fantasy, magic realism, horror, and anything that's just a little bit too weird for, I don't know, Chatelaine. <laughs> and, uh -huh. That's rather broad. It is. It is. It's, it's uh, essentially, I think a lot of stories that show up in On Spec are just stories that we really, really like. Sure. And uh, But they have to have some kind of a fantastical element to them. And how long has On Spec existed? Uh, since 89, Diane. Yeah, is it's over, right? to over 20 years yeah. now. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. How many, do you, do you know what your readership is like? Right now, we have around 400 plus subscribers, mm -hmm. actual paid subscribers. And then newsstand copies would probably sell another 150 or so every issue. Okay. So this, this publication is 20 years old, uh, so it's been around for a while. What started it all? Like, why? what was the point, you know? I think, Diane, you better handle that one because <laughs> I came on two years later. So yeah. Diane is one of the founding members. Mm -hmm. So it, it was started by frustration more than anything. Um, way back when, I, I actually was part of a, a writer's critiquing group like we would get together and um, just basically uh, everybody would read everybody's uh, story submission and then we would tear them apart and then people would take them back and rewrite them and then send them off to a market now the trouble was that a number of people in our group were writing speculative or science fiction at the time and they were sending stories to the usual suspects in other words Isaac Asimov's magazine uh, magazine of fantasy and science fiction, you know, they were in states. And they kept getting rejections. And the rejections were things like, this is really, really, really good, but our readers won't understand it. 
And then this is really, really good, but it's too alien for us. And, and you know, things like that that kind of got frustrated. So one night too over... Too dark sometimes yeah, as well. Yeah, too dark. Is yeah. Exactly. And, and so one night over, I think, several bottles of wine, um, somebody said, well, you know something? We should start our own magazine. It's basically how this podcast started, too. Yeah, pretty over much. Over several you bottles know, that, of wine. That, that's how you do these things. And the synergy was there. We, we knew writers. Like, we, we put out a call to a whole bunch of uh, Canadian SF writers that we knew quite well and said, look, we want to have this magazine out by such and such a date. Send us a story. And so they sent us stories. The first stories were solicited. And uh, we had enough to put together a really decent issue. And we had a cover artist. We had a um, desktop publisher who was uh, running things out of her home so she could put it together. And we had some money in, you know, invested in the magazine. And we just put it out and published it and sold out and then went, okay, now what? And then we decided to do another one. And we kept on going. And I think the next year we actually got some government funding to help with the magazine, did we not? Well, yeah, we, we were, you know, no strangers to applying for grants. Right. And yeah, I think uh, most magazines sort of start <laughs> that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and as soon as we were eligible to start applying for funding, like Canada Council or the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, we, we chose to do that, and, and that's how we maintain ourselves. Cool. So yeah. uh, you started by soliciting content. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, over 20 years, I'm, I'm assuming it's gotten easier to get stuff for the magazine is oh. it mostly people coming to you and saying, oh yes yeah? oh yes yeah. we recently just switched to e-submissions and we have been swamped by submissions from all over a lot from americans because i think in the past um people from uh, out of the country were a little bit um reluctant to send us work if it wasn't easy mm. now it's easy you just press a button you can send your manuscripts into us so we're looking at or uh, how we how we do things yet again because of that. And you're publishing long form stuff and short form stuff. No, just no? just short stories and poetry. We're toying with the idea of serializing a longer story. Really, I but, think that'd be really uh, cool. But you know, it, we haven't come across something that we really, we really, really want yet. We've had a couple of of authors actually um, submit stories to us, or at least say that they're going to send us something so we're just waiting for the right story now have any uh i suppose recognizable significant canadian sci-fi fantasy horror authors kind of got their start in on spec that you can name drop right now oh absolutely oh, yeah. cory doctor who uh is a uh, hugo winner is he not for little brother yeah. oh probably yeah. um yeah he started with us with our youth issue which was actually the first i th- that's right, isn't it? It was Corey's first sale. And Those actually, that was spec. my first uh, first experience as an editor with OnSpec as well. In in '91, I started, so we can claim t- uh, Corey as one of our our writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl Schroeder, um, Peter Watts, uh, Holly Phillips, Holly Phillips, yeah, mm-hmm. Leah Bobet, Robert J. Sawyer. We didn't start with us, but he's certainly been with us. He's and one day, Scott C. Bourgeois. I'm not a really good fiction writer, though. You only write the truth about life? Uh, that, yes, I'm a non-fiction writer. Yes, yes. I'm a non-fiction science fiction writer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he believes aliens visit him. That may or not, may not be true. <laughs> no rules. No censors. It's Adam Rosenhart, Unleashed. There's been a lot of debate in favor of and against reopening the city center airport issue. On the one hand, Envision Edmonton believes that it should remain open. In fact, 
restored to its former glory so that those people who own planes and the three of them that have actually used the facility over the last 15 years can benefit once again from it being open. The other side uh, believes it should be closed, that the airport lands uh, are an opportunity to redevelop a section of land so large and so close to the core of the city that that uh, the opportunity is is uh, is staggering, really. that there's no other such opportunity in any other city in North America, and, and, and fair enough. I am definitely pro-closure, pro-redevelopment. I'd like to see something done with an airport that I've never used and that most of the people I know have never used either. But that's not what I want to talk about today. Uh, I think both sides of the debate have handled themselves very poorly over the last few months. They've conducted themselves in ways that are, shall we say, less than hospitable. And some of the arguments that are raised by either side are questionable at best. One of the arguments raised by the side that wants to keep the airport open is the question of whether or not the land that has been uh, tarnished by spilled fuel and oil and such should be reclaimed. The answer, regardless of what happens to that property, is yes. No matter what, the airport land must be cleaned. It doesn't matter what people wind up doing with it. Edmontonians won't tolerate a, a knowingly polluted area to be redeveloped. It's about safety and it's about environmental stewardship. And people who throw out the fact that rec reclaiming that land is going to cost a fortune don't realize that regardless of what happens to the airport, we absolutely have a responsibility as stewards of the environment to make sure that that stuff is cleaned up, regardless of what happens to the land. I'm tired of hearing people trot that argument out that it shouldn't be reclaimed uh, as a means of saving money. That's not what we're about here. We have one of the best recycling programs in the city. We have one of the most beautiful river valleys in the world. And I, as an Edmontonian, will not stand by and let that land just sit there and fester. It's our responsibility to clean it up. Let's get it done. I don't care what side of the airport issue you are on. That is a non-starter as an argument. Okay, either side. You need to understand it's time to clean that up. Let's do it. And let's stop using that as one of the pillars of debate in this conversation. If we can call it a conversation. I'm hoping to see more of this kind of stuff, uh, more debates around this issue develop over the next few weeks, and I suspect they will. Uh, stay tuned for more on that. Maybe not from the Unknown Studios. We're trying not to get so political, but from edmontonpolitics.com and some of the other bloggers handling this issue. I'm Adam Rosenhart with the Unknown Studio. <laughs> Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at guru digitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. So you must get, you get quality, levels of quality that probably run the gamut, I'm guessing. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, and is it really heavy on the horror side or on the science fiction side? Like what kinds of submissions have you been getting lately? Let me think about well, first of all, um, in the past, I would have to say we would only buy five percent of submissions sent to us. So you know, between five and t well, five and ten percent is what we would buy. Um, those were the top-notch stories, usually written by people that are also top-notch writers. Um, we receive much more uh, from beginner writers who are just trying to get get started and are learning the craft. So you know, un unfortunately, you know, we encourage them, but we can't. Obviously, we won't pu publish them until they're ready. And there's maybe 20% that are stories that are good, uh, adequately or competently written, but they just don't grab us. They're not, they're not edgy enough, they're not quirky enough, they don't go far enough with, with their themes. So we look for stuff that's kind of um, on the edge of things, don't we? Yeah, it, yeah. Has to, it has to push the envelope, and that's what I say to, in a lot of rejection letters. I say, look, we're just looking for people who are pushing the envelope of the genre, which means don't send us yet another haunted house story. Mm -hmm. You know, young couple buys house in old, you know, little town in the middle of nowhere and strange things happen. Well, yeah, okay. Um, don't send, and, and a lot of people do stray in that direction. They're, they're going for the safe topics, the stuff that, that's the tried and true. Um, so we do get a lot of, of stories in, in that vein where, where they're, they're just not taking chances with it. Some writers get an odd idea, too, that we go with the po what's popular. You know, right now, zombies are very popular. Vampires are still very popular. I mean, we thought vampire stuff would die out five to ten years ago, and it's still going strong. So they seem to think that we want these kind of stories, and we don't. We want stuff that's very original, going off in new directions. You know, don't do anything that's been done unless you've got a real twist on it. Damn, all I can think of are zombie stories. I have a little zombie obsession. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm definitely late to that game. Because it, it's it's kind of a new, well, a renewed interest in the genre. And I would say it's the same with vampires, actually. I mean, they've always been around. They've always been a source of interest. But <clears throat> shows like True Blood and uh, that piece of shit show, Twilight, um, <laughs> you know, those are the things that really get people going for some reason. Well, my, my experience, and admittedly I'm not a professional, uh, is that certain themes and, and genres and especially when you're looking at like types of monsters or aliens or, or what have you kind of have a have a flow in in their popularity like there's ups and downs they'll be all over the place for a while and then people will get sick of them and they'll kind of disappear into the background for a while and then someone will come up with something new and boom they're back in the limelight it's like a fad really mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. a literary fad well it's mm -hmm. the flavor of the week mm -hmm. yeah yeah and, and unfortunately, a lot of, of younger, fledgling writers are basically influenced by what they see in the mass media as opposed to, are they reading the really good stuff that was written back in the, say, 60s? And are they reading Isaac Asimov anymore? Are they reading Harlan Ellison anymore? Are they, are they willing to take those kind of risks and come, come out with something that's newer and, and edgier than, than what you know, most people are writing? It would be really hard to be super... Like, I'm trying to think of a concept in my head of what would be an original science fiction or horror story, and that's what I'm doing, is I'm gravitating towards the things that I know about in that, in those sort of cultural areas. So I think I'd be an absolutely garbage writer when You'd it came to... You'd be a hack writer. I would, I would. Yeah, I'd write, I don't know, 
hybrid stories about zombie aliens or something <laughs> equally terrible. So well, if you have original twist on it, you I know. I don't think mm. I do right now. Mm. <laughs> but I think I think all writers kind of start there. You know, it's it's their way of experimenting with the craft and and uh, finding their own voice. So, you know, don't beat yourself up for that. You know, that's yeah. where everybody begins. So, um, do the two of you try to to write these kinds of stories often, or? I'm working on a novel right now. Okay. Uh, don't want to talk about that too much because we're here as editors. Um, so, and besides, I'm superstitious. I <laughs> don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to hex it. So, we'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to write uh, short fiction. I've had a couple of stories published, and I actually had what two stories published in on spec back in the day when we were reading everything blind, mm-hmm. and so we didn't know who the author of the story was when mm-hmm. we selected it. And so I was, you know, taking a break from the magazine or something. So I would submit a story and end up getting it, it bought by the other editors who didn't have a clue that it was mine. Same thing happened with stories that yeah, Susan had Favoritism. Favoritism. <laughs> <laughs> my but, first but, sale was with yeah. OnSpec, too, but that yeah. was be actually before I was editing. So I was really excited to be accepted by them and then later asked later on that year to join them. So that was pretty mm-hmm. thrilling for me at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have a... Uh, a sort of pseudo quote here uh, from Robert J. Sawyer, who uh, says that OnSpec is is Canada's longest running science fiction magazine, and also arguably its most successful English language magazine in the field. Back up his statement. <laughs> well, there aren't very many of us out there. I mean, uh, there, there's there's us in in print. Uh, there's um, Neoopsis, which is a, a much smaller but really edgy uh, magazine out of Victoria. Um, there's probably a few online zines that we're not even too aware of that we don't, you know, uh, it's not that we don't, we look down on them or anything, we just don't have the time to pay attention mm-hmm. to them. But uh, as far as print magazines print are in, in, in this genre, we're basically uh, the most successful in English Canada. There are French magazines like Solaris and, and uh, Imagine, but again, different audience. And let's clarify, we're not strictly science fiction. We're speculative fiction, which is an umbrella term um, for science fiction, fantasy, magic realism, horror, dark fantasy, and any number of those subgenres. So, I am yeah. embarrassed by my, by my ignorant statement then, paraphrasing Robert J. Sawyer. Um, do you think that maybe there's... Um, kind of a, a, a shift going on away from print uh, and online even with this sort of thing? Because I know we've spoken to newspaper editors, we've spoken to uh, to people who work on on, on other sort of uh, former dead tree kind of publications and their opinion is that things are kind of shifting towards online. Do you, do you see the same kind of thing happening? Not, not even, I suppose, with just uh, a fiction magazine, but just with fiction, period. Yeah, I think so, and I think we've we've actually d- discussed, uh, at, you know, adding that as an arm to our magazine is is uh, offering electronic versions. Mm-hmm. Are we, we're not doing that yet, are we? Well, we do have. Yes. Oh, we do. Well, okay, <laughs> I'm just an editor. I have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, we actually do have a, have a, a digital version of OnSpec available through a magazine subscription agency down in the states, and it's it's a a pilot project. Uh, we will be tinkering with other means of of getting the magazine out there. Does does having to uh, I guess format the magazine for the web. Does it worry you about the way payment would work, or like it's kind of a, a brave new world in a lot of ways? 
yeah. does it change the game a lot for you? Not worried quite yet. I mean, again, with this other, the, the way we're doing it right now, it's through a third party. So we don't have any control over how they sell things. They just kind of send us money once in a while. And uh, that'll work out pretty well for a while. We might end up going through, uh, we might end up doing it by ourselves. We, you know, there, there are legalities involved. And uh, so the, the version that we sell on the web is definitely not something that people can just copy and send to their friends. Although even that doesn't bother me that much because the more people that see on spec, the happier I am. Well, now, right now, I'm thinking this is something I need to subscribe to. Like you I'm, should. I'm I've been a subscriber for several years, as Diane is well aware. Uh, and it is it is a great read. And now so. that your subscribers mostly Canadian, like what what how what's the breakdown? Mm. Number wise, we probably have about I'd say eighty percent Canadian subscribers. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any notable? I. I presume that the bulk of the rest would be down in the States, but do you know of any other subscribers just in crazy play, far-flung reaches of the world you wouldn't expect? We have two in Hong Kong. <laughs> there you go. You know, like, or not Hong Kong, sorry. Um, I think there's one in Hong Kong and there's one in Japan. Uh, again, they're usually Canadians that are teaching English abroad and or <laughs> wannabe writers who are looking to, to uh, submit to us eventually. And OnSpec would be a great, uh, a great tool yeah. for, I, I would say, for teaching English. As a language, for sure, and, and like short stories, of, interesting short stories, a bit of insight maybe into some of the subcultures that exist here and around the world, I suppose. Um, now, you guys are involved with pure spec as well, and Scott is, I know, too. And we, I was going to bring it up eventually, but you trumped. Well, that yeah, one, so. you know, I thought I would, uh, and we we talked with Brent last year about pure speculation. Brent Jans, yes, we did. Uh, so what's the relationship between between on spec and pure spec? Because I'm not really certain. Diane spearheaded that. Yeah, well when I first heard about pure speculation it had been years since there'd been an SF convention in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the good old days I was active with NonCon which was the original Edmonton Science Fiction Convention back in the say 70s, late 70s, early 80s and through. But um, So I got wind of, of pure spec and I thought well, we at least have to have a dealer table to be able to sell copies of OnSpec, because that's what you do. And so that was, the I think, the first year. And then I said, you know, I want to keep on going with this. I know it's really small right now, but it's going to, to grow. And I offered my services as, and OnSpec services, as being the, uh, the, the literary component, I guess, if you will, of the convention. So whatever programming because because the, the programming for for gaming and comics and all of that was was really well taken care of but there wasn't a whole lot for writers and readers and if we we're going to make this sort of a an all-purpose convention that would appeal to as a wide an audience as possible then we had to have something to do with 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 writing and so i said okay on spec can pay the costs of a writer guest of honor to come in we can manage a stream of programming. I'm talking with my hands, which isn't helping you guys at all. <laughs> we can manage a stream of programming that would appeal to the readers, to the other writers in Edmonton that we knew existed. And uh, it's just kind of grown from that point on. And I go to, get to go to all the ConCom meetings, which is even more fun. So were you involved with PureSpec from the beginning or, or sort of a few more, years? Mostly just from the second, second yeah, year in. Yeah. 
The first year we actually had a table in, in a, a very, very large and empty dealer room. And, um, and that's when I, I got involved at that point. But Scott assures me that pure speculation is growing. Yes. I assure you that because, of course, last year you didn't bother to show up. <laughs> I'm a busy man, and I know this is a point of contention between us, but I will be there this year. I you, pledge. You better be. I pledge. Uh, yeah. On that note, we're happy to have Diane because she's awesome. And uh, on spec's contribution to pure spec is tremendous. I, it cannot be overstated enough, in and my opinion. You've so. been happy to see that that the sort of literary arm of it grow as well. Has mm -hmm. it? It's gotten bigger, as they say. Yeah, it's quite an enjoyable experience, yeah. and and we've attracted some new writers to the magazine too, which is even better. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's really great. It's also nice to hobnob with uh, notable authors. True. Rub elbows with them. <laughs> so back to the sort of technical aspects of the uh, putting the magazine together. Maybe walk us through the creation of an issue a little bit. Because, I mean, I, I have in my head what a fiction editor does, but I probably don't actually know. So maybe, maybe you guys can share that with us. Well, I guess the, the first thing, it starts, always starts with the stories. So uh, we read a lot of slush. Um, we make notes on every story uh, that we get. Then eventually we get together for what we call a fight night <laughs> and uh, hash it out and uh, try not to be too rude to one another. Yeah, we should clarify, it's not just the two of us. Oh no, there's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like there's three there's other editors as yeah, well. There are other people involved. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so, um, you know, sometimes we'll come to a story where one of us, like me, might really like and the others aren't too keen on it. But if I really like it, I'll fight for it. And I'll, uh, you know, I'll point out why it's good um, usually that, that doesn't happen so often. Usually what happens is, you know, two or three of us will really like a story. Another two of us might kind of have questions about it. Um, if we have questions that are valid, then we may actually work one-on-one -on -one with the writer with a, you know, under a buy with edit. So in that case, one of us will, uh, you know, champion the work, work with the writer, um, deal with all the issues that the editors have with it and, you know, buff it up so that it's nice and shiny and pretty and, and then we'll take it that way. But that's just sort of my end of it. From there on in, D Diane kind of handles the technical ends of it. Mm -hmm. We have we have a designer, and um, essentially what will happen is that we have a very lar fairly large backlog of stories. Like we we don't just say I'm only buying for this issue. Mm -hmm. We say I'm buying this story, and I'll put it in an issue sometime or other down the road. And uh, we usually will will use a story within 12 to 16 months of purchasing it. So it's kind of hard for the writers because they know they've sold their story, but they have to sit and twiddle their thumbs and wait for the copy to show up in the mail. Right. And I guess it is worth mentioning at this point, OnSpec is a quarterly publication, mm -hmm. so you get four copies a year. Yeah. And so, so essentially when it's time to put an issue together, um, I sit down with the stories that I know we've purchased, that we have contracts signed, we have a copy edit completed by our copy editor. Everything is in, in line there. Are, you know, all the ducks are in a row there. And then I kind of pick and choose the stories for a particular issue. Uh, try not to have like 200 house stories in the same issue, or you know, like you try and mix them up a bit, especially. And and although we've had, we we have aired, I think, in the past where we've had issues where somebody has called me up and said, you know, that was such a downer issue. Every story in there was completely depressing. I wanted to kill myself at the end of it. So it, it's hard sometimes. And sometimes it's just accidental that you'll end up with stories on the same theme because I come along and go, oh, you know, we signed that author's contract like a year and a half ago. We'd better use the story now. 
and so it goes in there because of that but you know then you place them a certain way that's the technical stuff um, we have a writer who is conducting interviews with a selected author for each issue okay. so I'll pick a story and and an author and I will send the information off to that person to um, to Roberta to uh, have the interview conducted so she can have time to write the, the interview so once we get that we get the advertising we need if we have any uh, any any you know complimentary like ads for conventions or anything that we're trading with people any of that stuff all gets put together and that gets fired off to our designer and then she does the layout and how long does this process take from from when you sort of grab the ball, I guess, because because the story submission and review is ongoing. That's right? constant. That's yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully around a month. Okay. Between you know when I sit down and say I'm picking the stories and, and everything ready, that it goes to the designer within that you know three weeks whatever, and then she's got th two or three weeks to work on it. The printer has two or three weeks to work on it, so it's actually more than a month. Yeah, at that yeah. point. Now, uh, do when a writer submits something that's not up to snuff and you're not prepared to work with them to get it polished, I suppose. Do you, does every writer get a response and a reason? Or is it just, thank you for your submission, but we're not interested? Diane, so far, has been handling most of the rejections, so we're gonna be changing that too. So you might as well answer that Yeah, one. we try um, <coughs> to, to do more than just the form letter. There is a form letter, you know, it's kind of an easy way to just, you know, well, have, you know. Some days are busier than others, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, but, because each of the editors, when we're reading a story, jots down some kind of comment. Um, as long as the comment is relatively constructive, right. then... Uh, yeah. <laughs> They're not always, though, No, sure. no, th there, were, there are some that is like, oh, my eyes, my eyes, you know. Like, but any <laughs> this, this manuscript <laughs> is so bad it gave me cancer. <laughs> <laughs> pretty close, pretty close. Wow, you're going to need um, some new editors then. So, so, you know, the writer will get at least a sentence or two to point them in a direction, even if the sentence is something like, you know, this is the kind of story that we see every day and you really do need to think outside the box. Right. That's still a good... But it would never be like, don't quit your day don't job. Don't quit your day job. <laughs> never. <laughs> no. Nothing no. like no. that. Yeah. Nothing like that. Which actually is a good segue into another question I had. Is this your guys' day job or is this something you do on the side? On the side. That's totally on the side. That's yeah. kind of what I figured, mm -hmm. that it's more a labor of love yeah. as opposed to what you are... You go in Monday to Friday, nine to five, and just read. In a perfect material. world. Well, <laughs> in a perfect <laughs> world, we would be doing this yeah. full time exactly. as well. I mean, I'm exactly. sure if it were a monthly magazine, like if you if you, there the opportunity to do that occurred, like you had enough funding and enough mm -hmm. advertisers, and it made sense that you'd probably. I'm guessing jump at the opportunity to do. Oh that. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. In a heartbeat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So your day jobs related to editing and writing at all? Barely. <laughs> no. Uh, well, writing. Yeah, my day job, I'm lucky enough uh, to stay home and work on my writing. So that's, that's awesome. That's what I do. Um, but a lot of the editing, you know, comes into the day. Um, lately, I've been asked to co-edit with Julie Trinata for Tesseract's 15, which is a young adult anthology put out through Edge Books. And uh, um, so that's going to, I'm going to have to set my writing aside when we have our manuscripts sent to us and just focus strictly on that for probably a few months. Mm. Interesting. Um, so you must keep tabs on, obviously, the trends in speculative fiction, science fiction, that sort of thing. 
What do you think of the vampire phenomenon as it's been presented to young adults, sort of with the Twilight series and all that? I'd be curious to know. You know, a lot of people run down Stephanie Meyer. They, I haven't read Twilight. My daughter, who is 15, has, doesn't like it. But she's, a, she's sort of a chip off the old block, kind of edgy herself, very much into steampunk, mm. and uh, resents it when her friends think that vampires are only sparkly and they were never horrible, evil, blood-sucking monsters that we, you know, we were first introduced to. So um, my take on uh, Twilight, I think that uh, people that criticize Stephanie Meyer may be very well envious of her success. She has managed to grasp the, the interest of the, the major public out there. Yeah. She's made major money. Good for her, you know? Well, I think that was part of the reason why there was resentment for Harry Potter when it first came out, too. Exactly. Was there were a lot of people who were resentful of J.K. Rowling coming up with something and making a mint off of it mm-hmm. out of nowhere out of whole cloth and I think there were a lot of people who were just like that could have been me and so ran her down for it so I, th- I think that's I think that in that sense Harry Potter and Twilight are kind of cut from the same mold yeah I think that people view the authors the same way I haven't read Twilight either and I've not seen any of the movies um, my girlfriend loves them and she actually said the reason that she likes the books isn't because they're well written because they're not they're scant on character details which allows a reader to insert themselves into Mm -hmm. the character of i think it's bella she's the main Mm -hmm. character and you then get acted upon by team edward or team jacob or whatever it happens to be so so you know there's definitely something to outstanding writing and it sounds like there's something to less popular writing too yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i wouldn't say i wouldn't um I wouldn't say the same thing about J.K. Rowling. I think that she's put a lot of thought into her character. I agree. I do like yeah. how she writes. I yeah. think she's very vivid. So I wouldn't put... I shouldn't say this. I haven't read Twilight, so I'm just going about what I've heard. Sure. I read it. Okay. Oh, we, we <laughs> get to hear your opinion next. <laughs> Actually, no. I mean, it was interesting because I had a long a long uh, train journey last year, and I said, okay, I'll take Twilight with me. I'll read it. And I probably won't read any of the other ones, but I'll read the first one. And I read it. And it's a very fast read. It's a very lightweight read. It's a read where I'm sitting there going, okay, I'm a 58-year-old woman. I'm reading a book that's aimed at a 14-year-old girl. (laughs) And I can tell. And it's fine. I mean, it's good for the audience. And that's all I have to say. It's it's not great literature by any stretch of the imagination. And it won't... It'll stand the test of time in that... (coughs) the audience of 14-year-olds is always going to be there. There'll be a new generation of uh-huh. 14-year-olds uh-huh. coming along, and they'll probably catch on to it, the same way as the Harry Potter books have stayed around with us since the, you know, the first generation of Harry Potter fans are now in their 20s, 30s, whatever. But And say what you will, <laughs> I think Twilight really is a love story with dangerous men. And I think for teenager, teenage girls especially, that's very appealing. Exactly. So, you know? Again, good for Stephanie Meyer. And if it gets just one teenager to read, then it's been worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There's the moral of the story. Yeah, really. really. And now, Sex Talk brought to you by the Traveling Tickle Trunk. Sadly, it's time to say goodbye to summer. 
For most of us, fall is the time when we get busy, and not in a good way. School begins, work goes back into high gear, and all of the activities that took a hiatus over the summer start up again, usually all at the same time. A lot of us neglect our sex lives during this time. We're too busy with other things to even think about having sex. But did you know that sex can actually improve your work and school performance? In pursuit of better school performance, we offer you five ways that having sex can make you smarter. Number one, a new study just published this month shows that having sex produces stress hormones. But instead of damaging neurons the way other stress hormones do, these ones actually help your brain produce new neurons. So having sex makes you smarter. Okay, the study was done on rats. If it made the rats smarter, let's just assume that it does the same for us. Number two, another study published not too long ago shows that sex prior to a stressful event can lower your stress response, lowering your heart rate and your blood pressure and making you less nervous. So remember this during midterms or when that big presentation for work comes up. Number three, during sex, you breathe deeper than you normally do. So that gets oxygen into your blood and into your brain and helps you to think more clearly. Again, useful for those big term papers or presentations. Number four, sexual pleasure, orgasm in particular, releases endorphins and oxytocin into the brain. And those hormones make us feel happy, relaxed, more positive about life, really helps you to deal with school and work stress. And number five, orgasm relieves muscle tension. So that and the hormone release helps you to relax and makes you sleep better. Being well rested, we know, is a key to better performance in daily life tasks. And don't think that if you don't have a partner, you can't reap all of these great rewards. Sex with someone else is great for sure, but sex with yourself still does all of these same things. At the Tickle Trunk, we always have your best interest at heart, so we want you to be sure you're at your best this fall. So we've got a special treat for you. Until September 30th, if you come into the store and show us your student card from any post-secondary institution or tell us you listen to this episode of The Unknown Studio and you'll get 10% off your purchase. If you're one of the first 30 people in, you get a free stress relief kit, which is full of goodies to help you have happy, healthy sex this fall. So you can find us at 99th and White or visit us at TravelingTickleTrunk.com. It's the League of Extraordinary Media, TheEdmontonian.com, TrueBrittle.com, The Unknown Studio, User-Created Content. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a guarantee of quality Edmonton-based online content. If you're interested in joining or would like more information, visit LeagueOfExtraordinaryMedia.com. Now, a dramatic reading with Scott C. Bourgeois. The main bridge of the Galaxy-class starship was located on deck one of the saucer section. As with most starships, the main bridge was modular and could be completely replaced with another bridge if the need called for it different Galaxy-class starships had different bridge designs. The following describes the bridge design used in at least two Galaxy-class starships, including the USS Enterprise-D. The forward bulkhead was dominated by the main view screen. 
Directly aft of this were the operations officer and con positions. At the very center of the room was the command area. The captain's chair at the center flanked by chairs for the first officer to the right and an additional chair, typically the ship's counselor or chief medical officer, to the left. Smaller backless seats were located on the edges of the command area for other officers to sit should the need arise. The tactical console positioned directly behind the captain was located in the wooden handrail that encircled the rear half of the central command area. The aft bulkhead carried several additional consoles. These could be customized as needed and were reconfigured at least twice. These stations featured pull-out seats below the console, which were normally flush with the panel below the stations. The bridge was also equipped with two food replicators. By necessity, the bridge had easy access to and from all other important areas of the ship. In all, there were six doors leading from the room. Moving clockwise from the main view screen, the first door, level width and to the right of the con, led directly to the Battle Bridge emergency turbolift. At the right rear of the bridge, a shallow alcove contained two doors, one of which would lead to a head, the other to a corridor leading to the observation lounge. The doors at the rear left of the room opened into the standard turbolift. Continuing around, the fifth door led to the captain's ready room, the sixth to another turbolift. As the main bridge housed so many critical systems, numerous emergency environmental and power backups were included so that duty personnel could continue to work for up to 72 hours in the event of a major shutdown or the incapacitation of the vessel. Other safeguards included seven redundant safety interlocks to prevent the life support from being turned off on the bridge. The bridges of Galaxy-class ships were subject to several minor cosmetic changes over their first decade in service. The first major refit came in 2371, as seen aboard the USS Enterprise-D. Six new stations were added, three on each side of the bridge replacing the equipment lockers. The aft stations were accordingly reprogrammed and moved to different locations. The three starboard stations were designated Science 1, 2, and 3. Science 4 became the first aft station, followed by Mission Ops, Environment, and Engineering 1 and 2. The port side of the bridge had three communication stations consoles, which were not common to the bridges of 24th century starships. In addition, the command chairs were raised two steps above the helm and op stations to provide the captain with an unobstructed view of the forward view screen. We should take a moment right now and uh, quickly give a shout out to our sponsors. That's right. The Unknown Studio wouldn't exist without the kind help, cash, and uh, beer supplied to us by our major sponsors, which include the, the Edmonton, Edmonton Journal. Journal. That's right. Those ink-stained wretches are kind enough to support us by way of sharing links and talking about us and telling all their friends about us. So we really appreciate the support we get from the Edmonton Journal. Another one of our sponsors is the very fantastic... Guru Digital Arts College. They're pretty awesome. They are. They pretty uh, awesome. offer up courses in all sorts of uh, digital media, and uh, web and design, coding. Yep. And uh, so, if you're thinking about a change in careers, that's a great place to uh, to seek out uh, with their art loft style 
classrooms. Yeah. And uh, and they're awesome instructors and uh, really nice people. So yeah, definitely check them out if that's uh, what you're interested in doing. GuruDigitalArts.com. And finally... Of course, you heard her earlier in the episode. That's right. Brenda Kerber from the Traveling Tickle Trunk, the sex-positive adult toy store located on White Avenue and 99th Street. Um, and if you if you act quickly, you can go down there, get a discount uh, on a purchase. And if you're one of the first 30, I believe, to go there, you'll even get a special stress relief bag. So check out the Traveling Tickle Trunk. Um how difficult is it to break into writing? How how difficult is it to get that first published piece in a magazine, in a book? Like, obviously, not everyone's gonna gonna strike it right out of the park the first time, like like a J.K. Rowling. But is it is it a is it a grueling process that's gonna grind you down and make you wish you were dead? Well, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, you have to uh, learn to live with rejection. Every single writer has to live with rejection, no matter how good you are. Um, or how good e you think you are. Well, <laughs> even if you're successful, you're going to have critics out there who, are, who don't think you're good, you know. So you have to kind of steel yourself to that. Everybody is different, I'm, you know. I mean, I'm not spouting huge wisdom here. Um, everybody's on a different curve when it comes to talent and uh, how long it's just going to take to learn how to um, hone that talent and, and learn the craft of writing. So yeah, like some people will just, you know, shoot off in, into space and be stars within the year. Others will take 20 years, you know, and for a lot of us, like me, life kind of gets in the way, you know. So uh, yeah, I've had some success as a writer and I've had rejections as a writer. And so I understand um, what that is all about. It's, it's painful at times. You just keep going. Yeah, there, there's no magic formula for this. I mean, it's like any... Uh, any endeavor, uh, even in uh, anything in the arts. I mean, how many people get to be famous movie actors overnight? Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, and, and it's the same thing with writing. Sometimes if you're at the right place at the right time, and sometimes it helps, like people ask me about, well, what good is on spec going to do to my career? And I said, well, okay, look at it this way. I say none whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes no whatsoever, but by the same token, there's an editor in New York who reads on spec, who chooses on spec stories for his year's best anthologies, and if a novel manuscript comes into his office, and there's a, something in the cover letter that says, I was published in on spec, you better believe he will look at that a little bit closer. And that's a given, you know, so in some cases it will get a person's foot in the door if you got as far as us then there's people out there that respect our choices and respect you know what we've chosen to to uh, publish and say well look you know von speck like that writer i'm going to give it another look you know have it have a have a good look at it it could happen it's going to happen <laughs> for me are there a lot of uh writers that you get maybe submitting that that are sort of on your radar that you you publish one story from them you never hear from them again, the sort of one-hit wonders? Oh, frequently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. There, there's a few that I keep looking back at old issues thinking, darn it, why didn't we get another story from this person? Because it was a really, really good story. That must uh -huh. be life getting and in the way, right? Yeah. For a lot or of them. they just decided to get into other other endeavors, or they you know, gave up on writing. And or it took them 20 years to write that first piece. Exactly. Some, yeah, possible. some people are like that. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll sit with the story and mull it over. and I don't, I don't know if that necessarily results in quality but uh, I think thoughtful writing is often 
better than just typing and going. Some people take career directions or career changes too. Like we had one young guy who um, graduated at the U of A here from the master's degree program in English, um, Jason Kapolka. We published six of his stories, I think, within two years. Really talented, fabulous, fabulous, you know, terrific young writer. He went up to San Francisco and worked with the gaming industry down there. Now runs his own business in BC and he's doing so well yeah but he's not writing at least uh writing for gaming maybe but not writing, not writing fiction, fiction anymore mm-hmm. so you know that good for him too. but bad for On fans of his fiction uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and fans of his fiction yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so what kind of writer you, you you buy their stories is there sort of a, a pay scale for for what you give to people or just by word count yeah. oh i see okay yeah, yeah. so you don't want people <laughs> i use a lot of adjectives and adverbs then no, <laughs> don't do <laughs> that. Because you're the fiction editor, right? Yeah, but we have a copy editor who's really mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so all writer's that. stuff is obviously subject to edit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And do you find that with, I mean, I know it's going to vary from story to story, but do you generally try to sort of just correct the grammar stuff, or, or do you actually really get in there? Um, I've just finished working with one guy who sent us a really great, st- really good story, um, you know, when you're writing, you, as you as you know, I'm sure you kind of lose, you kind of get blind to your own flaws, your own faults. So sometimes it takes an outside person to take a look at your work and tell you what needs to be tweaked here or done there. So I just finished working with this one Vancouver writer. Um, he sent us a good story um, structurally. It was pretty good. There are a few little places that I thought needed. Um, more definitions. We worked those kind of issues, and uh, so yeah, it sometimes it does go beyond uh, just polishing the odd comma, you know, that sort of thing. But I knew we could take that story and uh, really make it shine. Okay, so you've you've spent your ten years mulling over your your great Canadian novel. You've written it down. You've got it on a stack of paper. What do you do next? What is the next step for an author to take? if they even want to have the wild possibility of seeing their work printed somewhere? One thing that we usually recommend, or I personally recommend to people, is if nobody outside of your family has actually read the novel, you don't have a writer's group that you belong to or anything like that, then find a university or a library or someplace that has a writer-in-residence Um, program. There's usually one in every major city for sure. Mm -hmm. U of A has them, uh, Grant McEwen has them, you know, like that. And and if you can get your book read by somebody with the chops who has already published, you know, several books of their own and knows, knows the business, they can at least give you, you know, they'll look at the first three chapters or whatever. They can give you an idea as to whether uh, a publisher would even give you the time of day if you send it off to an actual book publisher. They'll be, you know, give you an honest appraisal, they don't charge for it, and it's not in their best interest to be nasty to you, you know, like they will give you an honest view of it. Um, other than that, you take your chances, you do your research, you find a publisher that you would like 
to see your work being published by, you know, whether it's a genre publisher or not, whatever the case may be. You're, you have to research where your work is going to go. Or you do the same thing with, with looking for an agent yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. If, you, if you wanted to go through the agent route, which is even harder than a publisher. Is it? And, um, and then, you know, you, you send off the first query letter, you, follow, you, you go to their website, you find their instructions, and you follow those instructions to the letter, you don't send them your entire manuscript in, you know, in the first go because they're not going to look at it. Yeah. One thing you can also do is go to cons because there's often um, uh, publishers and editors at cons and they will often have a pitch session set up so that you go and you put your name down and you, you know, slot yourself for, a t say, a 10-minute pitch session with them and you go and blather to them about your book and uh, then see if they'd be interested and... If, you know, if you're lucky, they'll say, yeah, here's my card, send it to me, uh, you know, when it's done, remind me who you are, you know, yeah. little synopsis, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, t take it from there. And, and yeah, for, for people, in especially genre writing, I mean, like, science fiction conventions are fantastic for this sort of thing. Romance conventions, way to make contacts with people. Uh, horror conventions, like, there's a number of them, and, you know, you, you sort of do your research and, and find out where things are being held, and then make that a vacation you know yeah. spend the money and go uh like i was just in boston in uh, july at this really cool convention called ReaderCon, which is all writers writers and publishers and editors that's the, the crew that were there and it was fantastic so there you go aspiring edmonton writers pure spec will have just such uh an opportunity for you so you should come out when, uh, when the writers, when people who are submitting stuff don't follow the instructions to a T, because you were very specific about that, mm -hmm. do they wind up on sort of a, a, not a blacklist, maybe a blacklist? Or do you, like, do you remember them or, th or think, I don't have time, why did you send me your whole manuscript kind of thing? I don't think we remember them. Yeah. No, we just get so, we have so much stuff to go through that... You know, if, if it's a good piece, yeah, we'll remember you because we probably want to publish you, you know. Or if you, we think you have promise, we might remember you. Um, but if it's just work that isn't quite there yet, uh, we get so much of it, I don't think we would. Mm -hmm. and, and fortunately, we don't read books. Like, we don't get, you know, we don't publish books, so we don't get book manuscripts. So right. that's not really a problem. Um, only time that ever happened is there was, there was one writer that we'd actually rejected from our last youth issue uh, competition. And about... You know, and we said in the, in the letter, we said, you know, this is a really neat idea. You know, you might want to expand it into a book, and and make it bigger because it was a very it was this kind of story that could have been made into a book. And about two months later, this book manuscript showed up in our mailbox with a covered letter that said, "I know you can't publish this, but I bet you know people who will." <laughs> oh boy! So you know, he the needed best a writer's group or whatever. The, yeah, yeah, he needed something. He was he was very naive about that, and yeah. he got a kind letter from us and basically said, "You know, look, here's where you could send a query. Try them." That's good. That's mm -hmm. that's awesome that you guys do that. We will remember the odd rejected writer if they write us back and rant on us and call us all kinds of names and. Uh, does that, that, does that, that has happen? happened a few times? A times. Yeah. yeah, we usually find it quite entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of just have to take it on the shoulder and move on, I guess. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's funny for us, you know, because like, especially when you look the writer up and you, and you realize that the only writing credit that this person has is letters to the editor. <laughs> and uh, so I don't take, you don't take it seriously. Does, uh, I wanted to switch gears here quickly because we talked a little bit about the web. Um, 
and I know that you're busy. I know that you guys have jobs, and I know that that it, you know you can't always be researching and reading. But have have you come across any authors that that haven't submitted to you that you just found reading stuff on the web, and were like this person, or maybe you got in touch with them, or you thought this person should be submitting stuff to us? No, I no. Haven't. Just no time. There's no just time. no time. Yeah. Yeah. It would be nice to be able to do that, but by the same token, we. We sort of hope that, that our name is out there in enough market listings and enough places that, that if anybody's going to send you know, us yeah. a story, then they'll go to the trouble of doing that without us having to ask them to. Yeah, if they're serious about it, I would think yeah. that they would. I mean, if we meet somebody in person, you know, like at a convention, and we know that they are writing, but they've never sent us anything, then we'll say, hey, you know, send us a story. Actually, you know, we went to a story slam about a month ago, mm-hmm. and it was uh, we were there as uh, featured editors... Um, publisher of the magazine and um, I don't know have you guys heard of Story Slam before? Only the name. Okay. I don't know what it is. You're more familiar with it than I am. Yeah well it, it's, a, it's a really cool gathering. Like once a month they get together it's the, the was it the Haven? on um, Stony Plain Road. Yeah. Stony Plain Road? Okay. And um, it's an evening where uh, a bunch of people that have written you know, whatever they write, it doesn't. It hasn't. Doesn't have to be science fiction. We were there because it was a specific science it was fiction a, fantasy a themed, night, themed night, but normally which not. is kind of cool. But um, they have a five-minute piece. Has to be five minutes, and they sign or up le- or less. Register ahead of time. Yeah, five minutes or less. They sign up, register ahead of time, and then they read their piece, and then they get judged, like like figure skating. You know, like five point six, seven point two. You know, that kind of thing. And the highest score wins the pot of money that is being passed around so people you know pass the hat and they can walk away with a hundred bucks they can walk away with 300 bucks well, I think the, the night, night we were there they walked away with about 200 yeah, bucks yeah. and one of the guys that read one of his stories really caught um, my and Robin and Anne's interest there's the three of us editors that were actually acting as judges at one of the tables and we're whispering amongst each other saying oh, we really like to take a look at that uh, that story a second time it's so original um, so we approached him. Now that doesn't happen very often, but we said, didn't offer him a buy right there because we wanted to take a look at it again. Sometimes when you hear a story, it's maybe not as great, you know, written as it is heard because of expression and that sort of thing. But um, I think Robin is actually working with with that writer now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we are, he did the copy edit, and so we're, we're buying it. Yeah, we're buying. We're it. buying that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's somebody who never would have ever considered sending on spec a story, which is, you know, it's it's really cool. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. It is exciting. Cool. Are there any authors who you've seen cross your desk a few times now who's seen published work in on spec who you're like, that guy's going somewhere, like someone that we should be watching out for? I have one guy that I just finished working that I think is like that. I don't want to give out any names right now, but he's oh, in Vancouver. Play he's only 30, and he's already writing at an amazing skill level. Yeah. So he's also got uh, upcoming publications coming up, I think, in Clark's World, which is a big uh, e-zine. Um, he's got a number of credits behind him that are all good and solid with American magazine publishers as well. So I think he's going to be a name that we're going to see. Is he going to be published in the next issue of OnSpec? No, we just no. bought his. We just bought his story. We still have to go. So we're not the, sure, right? It'll be another year. Or Probably so. another yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. So you guys do uh, every quarter, every season, because mm-hmm. you fall, winter, spring, summer. Yeah. 
Um, More or less. And you mentioned you have a youth, you did a youth issue, or you do youth issues? We did a specific, we've done two of them over the Mm -hmm. years. Um, The first one we did was back in, what, 1991. And we used to do, or tried to do an annual theme of some kind, like a horror issue or a hard science fiction issue or whatever. And um, we're sort of straying away from that these days. But the last one we did was our youth issue. And we asked for submissions from people under the age of, what, 25? There were two, two, categories. two categories. I think 19 and under and 25, 19 to 25 or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And, and the fun part was that totally not planned by us, the two winners, like the two winners in each category, were both from Edmonton. And we got cool. stories from everywhere in Canada. It was strictly Canadian submissions, but the two winners came from Edmonton. Favoritism. And, and, well, what was really even weirder was their their first names were Brittany, both of them. <laughs> oh, that is a, that's pretty unusual. <laughs> but and they are two writers that I think we will see more of in the coming years, and I'm really hoping we will. Cool. Mm-hmm. Next, past fifteen. No. Oh, yeah. You've got more? National Novel Writing. Oh, yeah. I want to touch yeah. on National Novel Writing Month. Ooh, uh, that's coming up in, in November, mm-hmm. uh, wait, which wait. is National Novel Writing Month. And what's, uh-huh. the, what's the acronym? NaNoWriMo. Okay. NaNoWriMo. Um, and I'm, I'm curious what, uh, as two people who are professionals as writers and as editors, what your take on that is. Is, is that something you guys are kind of boosters for or something that you're kind of leery about? Do you think that it's it's good to get people writing? And and I I should be clear that National Novel Writing Month is not about writing quality. I was just gonna say it's about de- writing quantity. Is December the month where you get a lot of crap submissions? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it doesn't. There's no relation. No, no. I think it's like the three day novel competition. I think that anything that gets writers in their seats writing mm-hmm. instead of procrastinating is going to work. I mean, it's, it's good for the writer, it's good for the eventual audience if they, act, you know, they turn out a decent book at the end of it. Um, and sometimes it's, it's absolute garbage that comes out, but that could be their first book, and then they're going to do another one, and maybe their fifth book is actually going to hit. Mm-hmm. Is that something you participate in, Susan? No. No? I, uh, I'm a very, being an editor, I'm also a very picky, fussy writer. So it takes me a long time. It would drive me nuts to do NaNoWriMo. I'm sorry. but And kudos to those folks who can do it because I think that if you can just release your inner critic, your inner editor, and just write, you know, you will probably bump into a few gems along the way. But I couldn't do that. It, you know, I just uh, I just sort of plot along and, and edit. Every day I, I'm not supposed to do this, but I write something, then the next day I go back and edit it and then move on. So it's like... Two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. What about you, Scott? Have you ever done the National Novel Writing Month? I've written about a thousand words before, and yeah. I should uh, say that there is a fifty thousand word finish line. So that's just to say that I have attempted it and failed. You're two percent done. Yes. I've never tried it, and I don't think I ever will. It's uh, I'm not a writing's not my career. You know, I mean, I've I've done it, and I do it at work, but. Uh, I just don't. I don't have it in me to write a fifty thousand word story. I'd rather. I, I'd rather do like a podcast where we interview people who are doing interesting things rather than have to actually do the interesting <laughs> things myself. So I think you have to start with a really killer idea. Yeah, and I something that any. just drives you that you're you can get really excited about, passionate about that that you, that carries you along. You know, and 
Yeah. Hard to come by. Definitely. It's we get idea. we get a lot of, of short stories that show up at on spec that we know just from reading the short story is that this isn't a short story. This is the first chapter of your novel. You know, because it's just way too big for short fiction. That's awesome to get stuff like that though, isn't it? Like I, if, too it's, bad. It, if it's good, yeah. 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 <laughs> too bad it can't go in the magazine, but you might see this on bookshelves in a couple of years, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's possible. I mean, there, there is potential. And sometimes it's because the people that are writing stories for us don't actually read short stories themselves. Mm -hmm. It's it's a really, really... Um, what's the word? It's a, it's a different science than writing novels. I mean, no, it, it's, it's it completely different. Different challenges. So what, what are the things that... Or what's one of the things you don't like about the job? Or do you like everything about the job? Well, I mean, we I would absolutely love it if every single story we got was a gem and I didn't have to work hard and <laughs> I would read it and go, yes, I love this story, we have to have this. But, you know, as you said, 90 to 95% of the stories we get are not in that category. And I would say there's maybe 5 or 10% that are so, such the, the efforts of such beginners that that you just don't, want to read any further after after five or six pages now um i probably shouldn't have said that <laughs> but hey, uh, it, happens. it happens it happens but you know like as i said before everybody starts somewhere and you know usually that isn't a good place but you just keep going and you'll get there yeah what about you diane well as in, in the management capacity of, of running the magazine the, the hardest thing for me of the, the, uh, the job, worst part of the job, is just the applying for the grants every year. Yeah. Um, we appreciate to no end the fact that the government, or at least the Canada Council and the Alberta Foundation and Canadian Heritage will value Canadian cultural, you know, like magazines especially, to the extent of, of you know, giving them money, but every year we have to justify our existence. And that takes time. It takes a lot of, of creative writing to sit there and write a grant application to say, hey, this is what we've been doing for the last 20 years, and this is why you should give us money. And uh, it takes time away from other things that I could be doing. Yeah. You know, so so that it, it, it's a necessary evil. Sure. We have to and do if it. it weren't for Diane, I don't think the magazine would keep going because I don't think the rest of us have the patience for that. So, So how much longer do you see yourselves doing this? on spec. Oh, I have no idea. I don't know. That. There's no end in sight. No end. I don't think so. Okay, no. that's awesome. No, we're so getting we're not getting any younger. Well, who but is? <laughs> but um, it's the kind of thing that, again, in a perfect world, somebody with a whole lot of you know very deep pockets shows up and says, "We'll take over on spec and pay you a salary, and you don't have to do all the grunt work and everything. You could just read." manuscripts and and you know in, in, a, in a dream state but um, uh, and but we are sort of grooming you know younger people to to be part of our editorial team mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. again none of us are, are that young anymore so uh, but I'm not I'm not losing any enthusiasm for it and that's the big thing is mm -hmm. it's not boring it's not no it's always exciting yeah it's not too frustrating so mm. yeah I enjoy it I don't imagine it could be boring I don't think even so. even a bad manuscript has to have something a little bit kind of exciting about the newness of it. 
I would or say. Just I would the, think the sheer badness of it might be extremely. <laughs> well, the Who the knows? kind of bad where it actually wraps back around being awesome. Where yeah yeah you're just like wow this we have to do something with this. And listen, I just well, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna jump in here too uh, while we're on the subject of bad writing, bad manuscripts. One of the things that Diane and I have done in the past, we haven't done it this past year, but maybe we should think about it again. Is we used to offer writing workshops usually through the Edmonton Public Library, and. Um, based it on sort of the the errors that we the common errors that we see beginner writers make um we usually take a half day to talk about that and i believe you guys uh, published something yeah regarding actually, that as well because yeah. i have a copy of it at home oh <laughs> okay yeah i wrote that book but i wrote that thanks to diane in you know encouraging me to do it so we take the abcs and uh, it's a basically a primer and uh we've done workshops based on it i think people get a lot of value out of it mm -hmm. yeah. I, it was it was a very useful read and coming from someone who's only kind of tangentially thought of maybe writing something at some point but it had a lot of really excellent points in it and if you can find it i don't know if you guys still make it uh you should definitely pick and it we're up just we just finished talking about going into a second edition so I there you go when the second edition is made <laughs> you should look and you are if you are interested in writing speculative fiction you should pick it up because it was Actually, it was very useful. I will say, I will go on record saying it was it was an excellent read. Thank you. Yeah. And for anybody who's um, teenagers, like thirteen to eighteen, thirteen to nineteen, whatever the the age range is, um, Barb Goller Smith, who yes. is one of our other editors, <coughs> she is going to be running, and I'll probably show up for it. But she's going to be running uh, a young writers workshop at the downtown library. Mm -hmm. uh, the fifteenth of October, whatever the Saturday is, in the middle of October. And um, so whoever is interested in that, contact our office and get details on it. And, of course, the very next week uh, is Pure Spec, right. and Yay. they will all be there as well, because uh, OnSpec does run ConSpec, the literary part of the show, right. so mm -hmm. they would be happy to talk to you and there as well. I will be at Pure Spec this year. There you go. So another reason to go, because yeah. you get to hobnob with Adam as well. Uh, so when does the next issue of OnSpec come out? We should be going to our designer this week okay we're hoping to have the next issue by early october so we can actually have it at pure speculation cool and uh, so that's what we're aiming for yeah all right you asked about it before i did i think adam it is time for your favorite part of the show the fast 50. So the Fast 15 is a part of the show where we take uh, 13 standard questions that we ask of all our guests and ask them, and then we ask two wildcard questions. But since there's two of you, we're going to do a Fast 16 today uh, where you'll get two wildcard questions each. So uh, I'm going to flip a coin. Uh, Susan, heads or tails? Heads. All right, heads it is. Heads starts. Ah. <laughs> Tails, tails. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Fast 16 with uh, Susan McGregor and Diane Walton from OnSpec Magazine. Here we go. Number one, your favorite food. Sushi. Your favorite color, uh, Diane. Green. Mac, PC, or Linux? Oh, dear. Well, you know, I'd have to say PC, although I would like to be a Mac user, but I'm not. <laughs> PC. Fair enough. Uh, dogs or cats? Cats. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Your favorite holiday? Oh dear. Uh, <laughs> sitting in a cabin by myself by a lake somewhere. That sounds awesome. 
Uh, your favorite sport? Yeah. Does dance count as a sport? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It's in the Olympics, isn't it? It sure is. There you go. So <laughs> it counts. Um, your favorite pastime? Reading. Sure. Uh, favorite music right now? Flamenco. Okay. Your favorite movie? Oh, brother. Uh, this is always the stumper yeah, question. Yeah, it is. It really is. Uh, over the years, uh, Casablanca. Sure. Yeah. Uh, favorite video game? Mario. Right on. All of them? One of them? A Super Mario, yeah. I think. Okay, sure. Uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Probably telekinesis. Nice. We haven't had that one before. I, I think, think that is the first Very person to unique. say that. Now we're into our wild card questions, starting with Susan. What is the, in your opinion, what's the best monster in science fiction? The best monster in science fiction. Wow. Across You know, I'm sorry, I'm old-fashioned. I still really love Godzilla. Sure. That's wicked. An unexpected that is answer. awesome, yeah. And now, uh, Diane, what is the worst monster in science fiction? Oh, <laughs> Lord. The worst monster That'd be Godzilla again. That <laughs> <laughs> could very well be. Um, I'm trying to think of, of movies that, or like, in, not, or books, too, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um... Okay, you come up with something. <laughs> sure. Okay, the balloon monster from The Hitchhiker. The thing that used to float, <laughs> yeah. the float, float on the water. That was terrible. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> All right, last two wild card questions. Uh, and let's switch it up because you answered that question, Susan. Okay. So, Diane, if you could give young science fiction writers or speculative fiction writers uh, one piece of advice, what would it be? Read. Sure, okay. And, uh, Susan, where do you see on spec in five or ten years? Uh, exactly where it is right now. Um, bigger and better with our electronic uh, version of it, I think, uh, stronger than ever. Cool. I'm hoping we could also maybe branch a bit. We talked a little bit about maybe taking some of the writers that we've already um, worked with and doing books, collections of their work that we've Anthologies. published. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Definitely. Yeah. Educational. Yes. Uh, in, you know, like we're, we're, we're looking right now at doing uh, or putting together an, an educational anthology. So it was something we could sell to teachers cool. to, uh, be, to be able to teach speculative fiction using on spec stories. That'd be it's something that uh, there wasn't enough of yeah. when I was in English class. We took like creative, I took a creative writing classes, but they never really touched on that kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. N- none of the sort of. I think, I think uh, there's a lot of, I think, and it's a shame really, because speculative fiction is, is very popular. But I think that there's still almost a um, a stigma against it in the mainstream. Like, it's still just like the nerdy genre. Yeah. That, you know, real people who read don't really read it. But everyone does. Even the people who are saying real people don't really read that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's, that's maybe why you don't see it often in the classroom, which yeah. is a shame. And, and it doesn't get nominated or win things like the Giller Prize or, you know, any of those How many those science awards? fiction writers have won a Pulitzer Prize, I wonder? Mm. That's a good question. Mm. On our next episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why, that's why we have our own award in Canada called the Sunburst Award, which is a, a juried prize for science fiction Perfect. and that's, fantasy writing. That's right cool. On. So science mm. f- fiction writers, or speculative fiction writers, rather, mm-hmm. uh, you can submit your stories to OnSpec online, I'm guessing at OnSpec.ca. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, you, you go to the uh, the OnSpec website, it will give you complete dir- instructions on where to send them, because we have a separate uh, email address for the stories to come in. And follow the instructions to the letter. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to be read. Uh, 
<laughs> Susan and Diane, thank you very much for joining us on the Unknown Studio today. Yeah, it's well, been thank awesome. you. It's guys. been a pleasure. It's yeah. been great. And we'll see you at Pierce Beck. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 32. Our guests, Diane Walton and Susan McGregor. Reproduction by Adam Rosenhart. Post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. I believe aliens visit you, and I write about it. That may or not, may not be true. <laughs>